0: Open up your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 1. It's good to be with everybody once again. (sighs) Genesis chapter 1 is going to be kind of our launching pad here on this Sunday school class again uh, as we study protology. Uh, (coughs) uh, Let me just... uh, (laughs) Let me just begin today by uh, talking about what's going on in terms of uh, Genesis 1 through 3 as far as um, biblical theology. Remember, in our study of biblical theology, um, yes, biblical theology, I, could, I couldn't sum it up better myself, To God be the glory, that's what biblical theology really is. Uh, but in biblical theology, remember that uh, we're, you know several theologians have pointed out that what you're concerned with in biblical theology is a couple things. One thing that you're concerned with is the progress of revelation. Uh, how it is that revelation is uh, progressing, how it is unfolding, uh, and, and ultimately, how is it tethered together to other parts of, of God's Word. Uh, but, uh, you know, I just wanted to kind of introduce a, a concept, and that's the idea that what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3 is really the idea of life. The idea of life. Um, the idea of life. So um, this is uh, Gerhardus Voss's uh, biblical theology. This is where he really wants to zero in here. He wants to point out to us a couple of things about that. What he wants to say is that what we're seeing in Genesis is, of course, the creation of life. Uh, but we're also seeing the potential of life. We're seeing the potential of life, and that potential is sort of, um, it's, it's sort of signaled for us in a sacramental symbol which is the tree of life, right? And so you have, for example, uh, the tree of life being uh, presented to us in Genesis uh, chapter 2. And, and, and not only is the tree called the tree of life, but, of course, you understand that failure uh, to obey God results not in partaking of the tree of life, right, but being barred from the tree of life. Uh, and disobeying, uh, talk about the life principle here. Genesis chapter two. I just remind you of these words. Um, God told Adam and Eve. Uh, he, well, he told uh, the man. He says, "You, you shall not eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die." So, I think Voss is onto something here. That what uh, what protology is giving us is it setting forth uh, for us a principle of life that man was supposed to reach, right? Um, where uh, uh, Eden, in a sense, we remember we looked at last time that what's going on uh, in much of Scripture is that there's an analogy between what we talked about, the ideal life versus the earthly life. Remember that? And we talked about that what protology is giving us is sort of a symbol of, Heaven, um, and what we did is we took those two bookends, which was Genesis, right, one through two, and Revelation, right, 21, 21 through twenty two, um, and that what's happening is that in the early chapters of Genesis, we're given sort of a a a, um, a paradigm, a program of what is to uh, what is uh, supposed to follow the ideal situation right? Uh, sorry. The heavenly ideal, I guess we can put it that way, right? I just want you to see that uh, because what happens, of course, is, of course, the fall takes place. And at the fall, uh, man loses this early correspondence with the heavenly ideal, right? We lose life and we are barred from the tree of life. And so what God has to do, of course, is he, ha- he has to introduce the concept of promise and that is what uh, genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is all about is that god uh, promises to save man if you would on the basis of what he will do uh, by uh, his victory over the serpent etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. and then what happens is as revelation progresses down the timeline of history what happens is that once again god moves in certain uh, major redemptive events that bring us closer, again, to the ideal. And we saw that, for example, in the Exodus. We see it with the kingdom, and then we see it with the arrival of Jesus, okay? Um, If you would, these are kind of three segments. What happens in the Exodus, uh, if we just want to think of it this way, and then the kingdom, um, is that we're getting closer, again, to the ideal. So what happens in Exodus... Remember, I think it was Exodus nineteen six, is that God separated for himself a people for what purpose? So that, as it says in Exodus 9, 6, so that they will be a kingdom of priests for God. You see that? Well, of course, we know that the kingdom of priest language, what that teaches us is that the ultimate goal of man's life is not simply to establish an earthly government, <laughs> Right? But God is concerned above everything with the religious life of man. So we have a corresponding text in Revelation, for example, chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, where once again, once we've come to the consummation of what is happening in heaven, God declares his people what? A kingdom of priests, right? And so this... This introduction of the formal theocracy of Israel brings us closer to the heavenly ideal. Same thing with the kingdom. When the kingdom is, you know, organized, the kingdom brings us even into a higher form of life uh, that gets closer to the heavenly ideal. Gerhardus Voss says that in the, in, the, in the life of the Old Testament people of God, the heavenly reality was hovering over them the entire time. In other words, as they were getting closer and closer in the way that God was organizing His people, they they were you know they had the reality hovering over them, uh, in the way that Hebrews talks about Hebrews chapter eight, Hebrews chapter nine. If you want to see that, very simply put, Hebrews chapter eight, Hebrews chapter nine, we are told that uh, the copies of the earthly things corresponded to the copies in the heavenly things. You see that? So there's a biblical typological relationship. That is there. And so what is happening? That of course, when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, he literally, and we could do this, uh, I kind of fell short there, but he literally makes contact with the heavenly ideal or what the scriptures call the age to come, right? That when Christ came, the age to come came with him. So, for example, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the power of God, the kingdom of God has come, (laughs) right? So what Jesus was announcing is that upon his arrival, the kingdom of God was present with him in a very real way, Uh, not in a consummate way, right? Uh, It wasn't consummated at the coming of Jesus. It was what?
1: Inaugurated.
0: It was inaugurated. It was introduced. That's what's, that's what's going on there. But just this whole idea of in the, in the Garden of Eden, what's going on is that this whole principle of life is being presented to us as that which is potential for man, that which is ideal for man, and that which God is going to seek to recover so that once again, man will come back to an Edenic state, and as G.K. Beale points out, and beyond, and beyond Eden, right? We're not just returning back to Eden. We're going beyond Eden. Because we're not going to be in a state of innocence. We're going to be in a state of positive righteousness, being clothed in the garments of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so that's why you have Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Revelation chapter 22, verses 7 and 16. Once again, you have a reference to the tree of life. Because once again, we return back. God brings us all the way back to protology.
1: Right?
0: Because as we learned last week, Protology is eschatology. That's right. Uh, The opening pages of Scripture, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, are eschatological in nature. They are showing us uh, something about the eschaton. Any questions or comments? Yeah, what is a protology
1: in it? How would you say it? Eschatology, what do those
0: mean? Yeah, so protology just simply means the study of first things, right? Eschatology is the study of last things. Most people are most people are uh, uh, most people are familiar with eschatology.
1: Eschaton means end.
0: Yeah, eschaton just means end, end things. So eschatology, study of end things, last things. Eschaton just means last. That's right. So, now we also said that as we look at Revelation progressing and we go through Scripture um, you know and through the different sections that we're going to look at, like protology, that we would also look at central uh, themes that are found uh, in the text, that are introduced for us in the text, that have, remember that we studied redemptive, right, historical, right? historical hermeneutics. I'm not going to write that, <laughs> right? Redemptive historical hermeneutics, which is a hermeneutical principle that suggests this, that at times what scripture does is it introduces a central theme that is then picked up later by later authors of scripture, developed in a historical fashion, but that ultimately has something to do with redemption, reading God's plan of salvation, um, and uh, uh, ultimately, what we see that is that these redemptive historical themes eventually find their fulfillment and their climax in Christ, right? So, I'd like to introduce one. Genesis chapter 1, uh, beginning, I guess we could just read verse 1. Yes, sir. Sorry, Could
1: you give me, that, like, me a similar definition of that? Sure. That so,
0: right. So, redemptive historical hermeneutics is uh, the principle of interpreting the Bible, right, Um along a historical, um, you know, along its historical lines. Timeline of
1: redemption.
0: Yeah, timeline of redemption with a focus on redemption or salvation, you see. Um, because, it, remember, we made a distinction, for example, there's another principle of hermeneutics called the, the historical grammatical interpretation, right? And there, the historical grammatical interpretation has nothing to do with redemptive historical hermeneutics. Grammatical historical interpretations has more to do, when they say historical, what they mean is more like background information. Right. Author, audience, argument. The, leben, the situation behind the author, behind the audience, behind the book, behind the text. That's, that's, that's grammatical historical. And then they're concerned with grammar. So you're thinking about exegesis. You're thinking about vocabulary, you know, um, Grammatical constructions, stylistic constructions, things like that. But redemptive historical is much more thematic in nature. You see? It's it's identifying central concerns, central themes in Scripture that are developed by Scripture itself. That scripture picks up those themes and develops it through the course of time and is fulfilled in Christ. You see? So Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now we already looked at Uh, some central themes last week, even with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, I mean, it's obvious, uh, especially if you were a Greek reader in the first century and you picked up the Old Testament, right? Let's say you didn't read Hebrew. Uh, You were in the first century and you didn't read Hebrew and all you could read was Greek, right? Right? So you went down the street, you know, you picked up your ESV Greek (laughs) translation, right, you picked up your latest Greek edition, right, of the the Old Testament, and behold, you pick it up and it says N-R-K. Well, then you turn to the New Testament that's also in Greek, and John chapter 1 begins with N-R-K. And then you understand that the concepts are the same. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, you know, nothing was made apart from him, and he created everything. You see what I'm saying? And so John is mirroring the Genesis account so that what you see is God's creative Word, his Word of wisdom, the logos, is developed over the the, the over, the, you know, over the, the theology of the Old Testament, and it reaches its fullness in Christ uh, as, as he is the divine Logos who is then incarnate, right? So already, I mean, you see this theology is exploding from the pages of Genesis, at least I do, <laughs> right? And then you get to uh, verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the, fa- the surface of the deep. And it says, And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Okay, this, this, that's as far as we're going to go in Genesis. Um, I, I, I intended to spend some time on, on day one, and then, Lord willing, what we'll do is we'll take several days together uh, in the weeks to come. But I stopped right there for a very specific reason. Uh, how many of you, if you have an NASB in here? A New American Standard Version. All right. Um, I think it is a very unfortunate translation that the NASB translated that Hebrew word there, uh, Rahaf as moving. Uh, it does not mean simply moving. <laughs> uh, it, it literally speaks of a of a of a different type of motion of a of a hovering. Uh, yes, ma'am. I was just- yeah. That's that's right, and I think that's a more that's a more uh, that's a better uh, translation. I looked at the Hebrew lexicons, and uh, certainly that is the proper translation. Moving is just to me way too generic. Maybe they want to leave it to the Trent, they want to leave it to the interpreter, let you decide. But to me, I think um, the proper word is that in fact the Spirit was hovering. He was hovering. Uh, over the surface of the waters. Now, once again, let's let's go back to what I in, introduced when the first time we looked at protology and even began talking about this. Remember, I said Genesis chapters one and two is written for Christ, not for Darwin. <laughs> right. So when I started studying Genesis, you know, one of the first commentaries I ever read was Henry Morris's uh, The Genesis Record. Great commentary. Uh, but 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 but. Once again, the commentary is written from a perspective of how do we refute evolution from Genesis. And I said, certainly Genesis has the capacity to give us a faithful account and absolutely to refute um, any notion of an evolutionary origin for the creation of the world, of course. But you have to ask yourself, going back to a grammatical historical interpretation, you've got to ask yourself, When Moses wrote Genesis, did he have Darwin in mind? (laughs) You know, of course not, (laughs) right? Um, Maybe a more controversial question. You ready? When Moses wrote Genesis, did he have Christ in mind? Yes. (laughs) I won't debate you. (laughs) But, but we have to be there. We also have to be careful because we don't know how much Moses knew about Christ and I've, I've kind of walked a razor's edge on that because every time I conclude, oh, they, they couldn't have known this. There's just no way they could have known this. I find some exegetical detail somewhere, somewhere in an or something, and just to illuminate something like, I don't know. But he Maybe have, they did know. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he does uh, more of the, what we think they does know. He have the
1: seed of the woman. That's right. So he had some glimmer.
0: I, I would say he had more than a glimmer, yeah. what I'm saying is yeah, like when it, for the
1: future
0: yeah, what I'm saying is when it comes to specifics, mm-hmm. how specific do we inform uh, Moses' Christology? I have no question Moses had a Christological doctrine. okay there's no question about that. How much of that Christology that he have developed? You know, you think of passages like First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. You know, they, the, the prophets of old, they made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what time and what person, what manner the Spirit was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, right? So right there, you already have, there's no question, the Spirit of God was moving in them, predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Uh, and we talked about that, that what that corresponds to, is that the Spirit in the Old Testament was predicting the Gospel. It was presenting the Gospel. And what about the Gospel was the Spirit uh, suggesting? The dual estates of Christ. His state of humility and a state of exaltation. And it repeats over, remember, repeated over and over. Romans chapter 1, 1 through 4. First Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Over and over, it's the dual estates of Christ that the Spirit was prophesying. Any questions? I want everybody to get that. <laughs> Any questions, comments, anything? All right. Let's all right. Let's go into this. So, what I'm suggesting is this: is that when Genesis says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, this is what I'm arguing. What I'm arguing is that this becomes a redemptive historical uh, theme that is then picked up and developed by later uh, passages, later authors, later uh, uh, parts of of, uh, uh, Israel's history, um, um, and, and ultimately it signifies redemption. So what I'm saying is that when the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, this is a redemptive motif. But you know what a motif is, right? A theme, an idea, right? This is a redemptive idea or theme that is being introduced symbolically in the most primitive parts of scripture, right? And that's what I hope to, to prove. Yes. What, how do you spell that? Spell what? Motif. M-O-T-I-F. Oh,
1: okay. And you said, what does that stand for again? A thought? Or
0: An idea or a theme? Yeah. And a reoccurring idea or a theme that is found over and over. So... Let's, um, let's, let's, let's make it a little bit clear. What is the Spirit of God doing there in the first, first day of creation? <clears throat> I think what he's doing is that he's involved in bringing the creation out of chaos and into order, right? He is moving over the surface of the waters. And remember, at this point, the world is tohu bavohu. It is in a state of formless and void. It is in a state of chaos. Now, we looked at this last week. In the prophets, uh, the language of chaos is reiterated time and again to show that Israel, when when Israel apostatized and went into exile and all these things happened to Israel, God described them as going back to a state of tohu babohu, going back to Genesis chapter 1, saying you've gone back to a, a chaotic state of affairs. God needs to act again. Yes, sir
1: footnote here in the updated version of uh, NAS says uh, waste and emptiness Mm -hmm. and again so it would be like waste and emptiness is useless That's right. and not only that but it's not pretty it doesn't have any charm to it so God is going to bring beauty out of chaos out of
0: that's why he doesn't call it good if you notice in the text he doesn't call it good until verse 4 until light is introduced right he doesn't call it good Right? Uh, because it's not in that ideal, it's not, it's not in that state that he wants to... Remember, we we looked at this last week, but the whole purpose of this is to bring creation into a place that it is an inhabitable land. Useful. Useful. It's inhabitable for God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. That's, what, that's what's going on in Genesis. In Genesis, what we have, uh, the big picture is that Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is giving us a... A, an introduction to God's kingdom uh, affairs with his people. Uh, Meredith Klein calls it the kingdom prologue. Genesis, he describes it as the kingdom prologue. It's introducing this concept of God's people dwelling in, in his land, under his dominion, right, uh, and with his people. So, uh, very interesting. Uh, real quick, turn to Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, So, I want to show you that, sorry, sorry uh... Genesis 8.
1: Uh, so, who who wrote Genesis?
0: Moses. It Moses wrote Genesis. Uh, and so, it was, what it was...
1: language did he write it in? Like, how did the
0: some some form of proto-Hebrew? So, some very very early form of Hebrew.
1: When did English like become a, I
0: guess a language. And Eng, when did English develop into a yeah. language? Oh boy, anybody have an answer for that?
1: From German originally, from German, yeah. from Anglo saxon Yeah. In the and, medieval uh, ages, some at some point for 800 years, uh, the Norsemen inhabited two thirds of England. There you and, go. Um, Engle- or Old German lost its word endings, they simplified it so that they could communicate with the Norse people. And we got all these Norse words like Friday and Thursday, and etc. Um, so you're and, talking medieval ages, yeah. And then, yeah. and then, you have any idea the what Romans century came in for 400 years. French was spoken exclusively in the castles and at courts. So we get this, and it doubled the size of the English vocabulary and totally um, destroyed our uh, simple German. Do you have a
0: century that you think that's around? 13th century, 14th Modern century?
1: English Probably 1400s.
0: Okay, 1400s. So somewhere around that time. Let's get back to this because we have a lot of material to cover. I just wanted to show you that what happens very early in Genesis is that you have a repeat of ideas right after the flood. So after the flood, again, the world goes back into a state of what? Chaos, Chaos right? The world is <laughs> under judgment, right? And look again at verse 1 here, uh, Genesis 8.1. It says, But God remembered knowing all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, watch this now, and God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. You see, just like in Genesis, it's not until the spirit of God is present that all of a sudden immediately after that day two you begin to see the dry land appear, right? And here we said uh, uh, it says that God caused and the Hebrew word is Ruach. It is the same word as spirit right it's either you can either translate it god's breath or god's spirit and a lot of times even though it can be translated god's breath there's there's theological implications to that there is something beneath there god or, or the word of god is trying to give us a picture a symbol a type right and so once again we have this concept of the the spirit of god emerging over the waters of chaos Look at, uh, verse 3, the waters receded steadily from the earth. Verse 5, the tops of the mountains became visible. And again, so what we're saying is this, is that in the flood, what we have is a repeat creation. It is a new creation, right? Look at Genesis 9. Genesis 9, just to link the vocabulary again with Genesis 1 to Genesis 9 and the whole flood account. Genesis 9, 1. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Exactly what God told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. I think it's verse, uh, I think it's verse 26. Let me get it right. <laughs> 28. 28, Twenty. thank you. I knew it was not 27, so that's the image of God language. Verse 6, Genesis 9. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made them. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now, uh, I want to introduce a really quick concept here, guys. This is one of the first places uh, where you see the term, the Hebrew word for covenant, which is berit. It's supposed to be a B. Berit. And berit uh, just means covenant. So here's a question I have for you. If we're connecting the concepts of be fruitful be mul- and multiply, image of God, and then we have the language of berit, the language of covenant, doesn't it make sense that the concept of covenant did not come from the pagan world and intruded into the pages of scripture, but that the concept of covenant is something that man learned from God, not from the pagan world, Right? So what I would argue is that Adam was in covenant with God. And that the covenantal language and the arrangement of a covenant came, they learned it from uh, Adam and Eve, the people did. Yes, sir? Why, why are you saying, like, who's saying that it's coming from paganism or anything like that? Uh, well, it's no. there's no doubt that near, the, the ancient Near Eastern uh, background of Genesis, for example, that covenants were a common thing that were... You know, by the time Genesis is or uh, Genesis and Exodus and everything is written, by the time the law is written, everybody understands the concept of berit. Okay, that the pagans understand. Everybody understands it. Um, so, so the reason why it's important, I believe, to to identify that the concept of covenant here is introduced uh, by the Bible, and that the, you know, certainly not God, but n- neither the p- the people of God. They didn't adopt a concept from the world and bring it back into the church, you know what I mean, or back into into the faith. You see what I'm saying? That's important only to point out because, um, you know, there is some debate, was Adam in covenant with God? I certainly believe so. I think Genesis chapter 2, I think you see that, co- that covenant organization in Genesis chapter 2, uh, 15 and 16 and 17, where God lays out the stipulations of you know, commanding them from every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Those are simple Those are simple covenantal terms that are being agreed upon right there. You have the parties, you have the stipulations, and you have the consequences. That's a simple covenantal structure in the ancient world. Yes, sir?
1: It's similar to the idea of the worldwide flood. Mm-hmm. In the Near East, there's lots of cultures that have, and even in, outside mm-hmm. the Near East, there's Lots of cultures that have stories mm-hmm. of worldwide floods. Mm-hmm. And the question is, did Noah just borrow this stuff? That's right. Or did the other c- cultures have some kind of a lingering afterglow mm-hmm. remembrance yeah. of the big flood that Noah right. was talking
0: about? Last time I checked, only the Bible has the genealogies that go back to the first man. Amen. Um, Amen. Once again, let me, let me introduce another notion. What we can see is that, yes, this language is repeated in chapter 8, chapter 9 with Noah, but it's also found in the Exodus. Look at Exodus, or I can just read it to you. Exodus 15. Exodus 15, we know what happens there, right? The people of God, once again, are going to go through chaotic waters in order to emerge on dry land. Exodus 15.8 says, At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. Verse 10, you blew with your ruach, your spirit, your wind, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. And again, in Exodus 16, uh, sorry, chapter 15, verses 16 and 18, uh, just the whole concept of the people passing through the waters uh, this, this, this is repeated over and over and over and over again. By the time you get to the prophets, now let me read to you a verse. Prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 2. It seems as if this language of passing through the waters is going to take on typological significance in a redemptive, historical manner. Where the prophet is going to use a historical uh, 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 event but he's going to apply it in a redemptive way. You see what I'm saying? And so Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. But now, thus says the Lord, you, creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor Will the flame burn you? And again, Isaiah 43:16, the Lord says, uh, "He who makes a way through the sea." Well, if you're a Jew, you're an Israelite, anytime God is talking about making a path through the sea, what what is your mind going to go to? (laughs) That's right, the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, and you passing safely through. See, the children of Israel passing safely through the Red Sea is typological of God safely redeeming his people by his spirit. That's what's going on here, I think. Now, let me give you another I think, a compelling evidence for this. Turn to Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Because there you have a very close... Uh, man, I, I tell you what. This week, I've been coming back to Deuteronomy 32. In my sermon and in Sunday school prep, uh, Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. It's like, wow, everything's Deuteronomy 32. <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 32 has a very, very uh, important um, parallels to Genesis 1-2. It says, for the Lord's portion portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him, watch this, in a desert land and in a howling waste of a wilderness. Didn't you just describe tohu babohu as being a waste, right? Well, guess what? The word used here for howling waste, a waste of a wilderness, is tohu. It's the same word used in Genesis 1-2. And then it says, he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him. Now, this is very important. Now, This is very, very important. Now, This concept of protection. He encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye. Watch this now. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. Mm-hmm. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. I want to make a big deal out of that. Because there, the word hover is the same word, rahaf. It's the same word that is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And it's the only other place where it's used to signify the concept of hovering. Deuteronomy 32, Genesis 1, 2. What's being introduced here? What's being introduced here is the concept of God's protective covering. Right? That's what he said. He says he encircled them, he cared for them, and he protected them. He guarded them. You see that? Um, the Lord uses the same language in Isaiah 31 five. Let me just read it to you. Like flying birds, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will pass over and rescue it. It's the same concept. Yes, sir. Go ahead.
1: I have a, I have a, a parallel text. Okay. I believe it's parallel. Okay. You can judge by your hearing, and it's just Isaiah. It's Isaiah sixty three, mm-hmm. and it and it and it talks about how I, I think I, I studied a little bit about this. But Isaiah sixty three eleven says how God had put His Holy Spirit in the midst of them in the camp to protect them and to. And to keep them. That's right. But it but it even goes off to say how the Holy Spirit, uh, what the Holy Spirit had done. So he so um, he, he speaks how the Holy Spirit was grieved. But then he so the people in verse eleven say, then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, and they and they said, where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherd with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them? To make for himself uh, an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Uh, yes, so he that's attributes, right. He attributes ah, that these things. He attributes these things to the
0: spirit of God. Very good. Who is uh, so? What indigenous. What happens is that eventually, what Scripture gives us is an image of God, uh, anthropomorphic. Well, what is anthropomorphism? What do you know.
1: Similar to people a man using animals, using human uh, attributing uh, human heaven. characteristics to them.
0: Using human characteristic or language to describe God—that's an anthropomorphic use of language. Okay, so what we have, whether it's to animal life or human life, right? Um, here in this case, God is being likened unto a bird, unto an eagle, unto a protect—you know, uh, uh, like a like a chicken that you know, gathers her hens together, right? That that. So what's happening is that the Lord Yahweh is being presented as an avian shield that will protect his people. In a redemptive way. Really quickly. But it's
1: interesting too. Yes, big birds like eagles, they don't flap their wings. Very, mm. very little. They just, they rely on the wind, the, the, uh, yes. the rising wind. And they, they just stretch the wings out.
0: And they hover. And they hover. That's right. That's right. So so maybe um, maybe a passage. Go to Exodus chapter 12, okay? Exodus chapter 12, just to see this. And as you go there, I want to read something, Okay. This is by Meredith Klein. Uh, Meredith Klein wrote an entire article on this avian shield imagery of God. These are not new thoughts of my own. I never ever claim to have a, uh, a primary thought in my life. <laughs> Everything I've ever learned, I learned from others. Praise the Lord. I'm not trying to come up with anything new here, just hopefully what's true. Uh, Meredith Klein says, God descends from heaven and alights on Zion. It, he's talking about the passage we just read out of Isaiah, Isaiah thirty-one five. He encamps over the city for warfare against the attacker. The divine hovering mentioned in verse 5 would thus provide an explanation of God's passing over action in the Pascal episode of Exodus 12, interpreting it as a bird-like shielding of the threatened, of his threatened people. So now Exodus chapter 12, look with me quickly at verse 12. Okay? It says here, "For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all gods uh, all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, this is what's provocative. Is that the same Hebrew word, Pasach, that's found in Isaiah 31.5, where God is going to... uh, protect his people in that imagery of him hovering over his people and passing over Israel to rescue it. That's what it says. He will pass over and rescue it. It's the same passage that is found in in Exodus 12 here where it says that God is going to, when he sees the blood, God is going to pass over. Now, right or wrong, when you think about the Exodus event, the avenger, the destroyer that passes through Egypt. Right or wrong, that what you, what you have been taught to think and what I have been taught to think is that God sees the blood and he skips it. Right? No, seriously. He sees the blood on the doorposts and he skips the house. So I'm not going to destroy that one. Right? But what Meredith Klein and others, G.K. GKB and others are suggesting, it's not so much God is like hopping over houses. But Pasach, just like in Isaiah 31, five, means that God is going to shield his people from the destroyer of death. Wow. He's going to stay on them to protect them. It's not a hopping over the house and then the Lord is gone. <laughs> no. He's going to protect and shield the people of God from the destroyer. And what is going to be the, the, the sacramental symbol of that? Blood. The blood is what provides man with, if you would, the propitiatory protection mm-hmm. from the wrath of God.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I have about seven other pages on that, and we're we'll n- mm-hmm. never going to get that in five minutes. So <laughs> any questions? Yes, ma'am. Well, no, I was just to say, like, Ark like a shield, too. <laughs> sure. <laughs> if you think about it, you know, they went in, and God protected them. hmm
1: I guess the only thing that comes to mind for me, though, is yep.
0: the idea that he's shielding from, who's he shielding it from? Because it's, he, he's the one that's going to be, it's his wrath being poured out anyway, sure. so that's why I don't... He's just, she, the, he's protecting his people from destruction. But he's um, the one that's causing the destruction.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. So, it's
0: the same with Jesus. Yeah. In a sense, yeah, if you want to take it all the way to the cross, it is God's wrath that we are being delivered from by God. Through the through the blood. You know. So like the, the rainbow, yeah. you know how he says he set his bow in the sky. Mm-hmm. Now some commentators say that, you know, the way that it was arch, arched, you know, it was yeah. like as if it's probably. back to the Lord. Right
1: to himself. Yeah,
0: let me let me let me finish by reading this to you guys, okay? This is Meredith Klein going back to the beginning. He says the first metaphor that we meet in the Bible likens the creator spirit to a bird hovering over the deep and darkness. He says, this same avian image is also a key figure in Exodus 12, account of the Paschal event, but it has remained hidden behind the mistranslations of the crucial word Pasach, not pass over, but literally hover over. Uh, This is the meaning of the word. And he shows all these lexical lexical, uh, ranges. And on top of that, there are other theologians that are now agreeing with Meredith Klein on this thing. Um, G k. Beale being one of them, Lane Tipton being one of them from Westminster, a lot of people are now catching him saying yeah he, he's got he 's onto something <laughs> because that's that 's the utilization in isaiah that 's the utilization in the prophet that 's the way he uses it over here in deuteronomy, so um, I think he 's onto something so basically what what Klein is saying is going back to Genesis one two is that what the spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep in the chaotic waters that is going to become a symbol a type of God's protective spirit over his creation, right? And the creation, but over his people to bring them into a good land. Uh, that's that's the best way that I can put it uh, because that's exactly what the spirit protecting his people was for is so that eventually they can make it safely to the promised land. Um, that's kind of the big, the big picture there. Um, uh, we don't have time for this. Boy, maybe we can pick it up next week, but I was going to say, where does all this climax in Christ, right? Yes, in terms of the atonement imagery and the cross, but also at his baptism. At his baptism, once again, you have the presence of the Spirit of God at the water, at water, upon his Son. yeah, there's there's so much there. The spirit descending. And so what I'm saying is this is the spirit being with his son is certainly a Genesis imagery, but also the descending of the spirit as a dove. So what does the dove remind you of? The dove in association with the spirit, with the water, should remind us of the dove of Noah. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is that as Jesus comes out of the water, just like when Noah emerged out of the water, when Jesus er emerges from the waters and the dove rests upon him, it is the symbol of a new humanity and a new creation that has come in Christ. Yeah. Anyway, we are dismissed. Questions? Bring them to me because I want them.